Okay, uh, so by way of proper introduction, good afternoon and welcome everybody. It's uh, truly a pleasure and a delight to present uh, the speaker to you today, Professor Amos Maurice Reich. Uh, uh, now from the Institute for History and Philosophy of Science at Tel Aviv University. Uh, by way of introducing him, I'm just going to uh, mention the, his two more recent works, uh, published works or, or books. Uh, just last year published, um, oh, I'm sorry, generally speaking, uh, Professor Maurice Rach's uh, work is uh, on the intersection of modern Jewish history and the history of modern science and technology. In 2022, his book, Photography and Jewish History, Five Twentieth Century Cases, was published by University of uh, Pennsylvania Press, uh, and it focuses on the discussion of photography and Jewish history on the political categories and registers of uh, 20th century Jewish history, instead of just focusing on Jewish photographers or Jewish topics for photography. His previous book, Race and Photography, Racial Photography as Scientific Evidence, 1876 to 1980, published by University of Chicago Press, examines numerous scientists and scholars who developed uh, photographic methods and techniques for the study of uh, race or made methodical use of photography for the study of race. And the title of his talk today is The Fusion of Zionism and Science, the First Two Decades and the Present Day. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me and for the very kind uh, introduction. Um, what I will present today uh, is a joint work that I did together with um, a close friend and colleague of mine uh, called Danny Tron from uh, the Col des Hautes Sciences Sociales in Paris. Um, and uh, so it really is a, it's, it's a, it's a joint work, it's not, it's not mine only. Um, maybe I'll only just say by way of framing that um, I'm interested in science between Zionism as a movement and Israel as a state. And I'll speak about science and Zionism today um, as a movement towards a state. But the question in the background is what happens later? That is, with regard to different events and later points in time, till the present with regard to the same tension between Zionism as a movement and, uh, and Israel as a state. Uh, it is well known that uh, the Zionist movement was very heterogeneous. Its history can be read like an unintended division of labor between currents that were sometimes opposite, sometimes complementary. Within this framework, socialist or labor Zionism, led mainly by Russian and Polish leaders, played a crucial role in the early Zionist movement, while it was mainly Austro-Hungarian and German Zionists who gave the movement its scientific and technical coloring. As Amos Funkenstein pointed out, I quote, without science and technology, such was the almost general consensus among Zionists, there can be no normalization. It is indeed a telling point that, it, that all the dreams of Herzl in his Altneuland, the most daring technological ones, were those realized nearly in their entirety. The book reminds us of Jules Verne's electric city, end quote. And while the socialist legacy was gradually, has gradually faded, the question that is at the heart of this talk has to do with the other legacy, the legacy of science and technology, and the extent to which it has endured and permeates Israeli society to this day. 
Because they pursue a modern project, all modern national movements have a strong relationship with science. Zionism, understood as a national movement of the Jewish people, as institutionalized by the Zionist Congress beginning in 1897, is no exception in this regard. But Zionism's relationship with science and technology is nonetheless singular in certain respects. Why and in what sense is it so? My argument in this talk is threefold. First, that relationship was established with the very inception of the Zionist movement. Second, it is characterized by a duality, a tension between a highly pragmatic scientific attitude on the one hand, namely science conceived as engineering, as a principal instrument of national construction, and simultaneously, on the other hand, science understood as working with the most fragile and inaccessible materials or building blocks. Here, the creativity of the Zionist movement lies in the arrangement of very disparate capacities and the orientation of the available expert knowledge toward a goal that remains vague enough to ensure broad participation. I will suggest that the Zionist movement was characterized by the quintessential place of a, a programmatic and detailed planning and of a striving towards pragmatically defined goals. At the same time, however, Zionism's ultimate goal, idealistic, utopian, and always just out of reach, remained unstated. While this talk only aims to establish this intellectual structure for the first two decades of the Zionist movement, I want to suggest, thirdly, that because the structure was embedded in the socialization processes of Zionism from its very earliest phase, it remains critically important in spite of the many additional historical events that followed for, for the understanding of key facets of Jewish and later Israeli society to this day. I will begin by articulating science's dual status within the Zionist movement as established by Herzl in his two main documents on Zionism. Um, the treatise uh, The Jewish State, the Judenstaat, and the novel Old New Land, Altneuland. Then focusing on Altneuland, the expert journal of the Zionist movement named after Herzl's novel, I show that uh, that duality characterizes the earliest phase of the Zionist movement. I go on to give two further partially interconnected examples from the first and second decades of the 20th century involving the sociologist Franz Oppenheimer and the sociologist, demographer, and Zionist functionary Arthur Rupin. Finally, in conclusion, I touch briefly on what we consider to be aspects of this intellectual and social structure in contemporary Israeli society and politics. The Jewish state and old new land. It is a commonplace today that the nation state is a modern historical construction. However, even though construction is a metaphor here, there are cases where it should be taken literally. It is not historical sociology that reveals the constructed character of the nation state, but the historical actors who thematize it in this way. I quote Herzl, in Basel then, I created this abstraction, which as such is invisible to the vast majority of people. End quote. Herzl writes this in uh, his entry for September 3rd, uh, 1897. Sociologists and engineers alike know that any construction has to be built from the building blocks that are available. In the case of a national movement, these usually include a territory and a more or less homogeneous population endowed with a language, customs, and a high culture even before they are targeted by a political intention. But in the Jewish state, Herzl, like a magician, signals that an abstraction will soon become concrete before our eyes. When the curtain is lifted, the edifice which is now invisible, would suddenly impose itself on, the, on, the, on everyone's view. 
the constructual material being of the most fragile, even inaccessible kind, this artifice turns out to be pure artifact. The Zionist movement did not attempt to mimic the illusion of a natural national blossoming leading to a national state. Instead, it based itself on an abstraction and a goal with no counterpart in reality. It would line up parts with which it would have to make do in order to assemble its mechanics. Any project relies on the realism of its promoter, and any, any project must be achievable. Of course, the history of Zionism, Zionist, movement, Zionist movement's emergence goes beyond Herzl, and the linguistic, literary, and scientific renaissance of Jewish culture in Poland in the second half of the 19th century, and the political history of the labor movement in Palestine in the first decades of the 20th, 20th century history are especially important in the context of the Zionist science nexus. The Jewish Renaissance and the labor movement both touch on the Eastern European sources of the Zionist movement, whereas focusing on science involve matter, involves rather the Austrian, Austrian, Hungarian, and German contexts, as the singular status of science in the Zionist movement owes its social intellectual structure to Herzl's two most important Zionist documents. The project of Zionism, which was first conceived according to a carefully developed plan, then had to be made into reality. With the two works that Herzl devoted to framing that reality, he endeavored to enlist as many allies as possible. The Judenstadt was a programmatic work published in 1896, poses the, the necessity of creating a state for the Jews and methodically sets out the means that are necessary to achieve that. Alt Neuland, published in 1902, is a novel in which Herzl imagines the future state, which is not actually a state, but rather a federation of cooperatives, Genossenschaftssiedlung. The Jewish state, the product of Herzl's legal imagination, is projective. It sets out the concrete modalities for realizing its objective by deploying the mediations through which the state will be concretized. Old New Land, the product of his literary imagination, assumes the fictional dimension of a society to come, a society that is capable of doing without a state. While in a way these two visions are compatible and complementary, they also stand in tension and even contradiction with each other. In one, Herzl elaborates the means the means of building a state for the Jews, and in the other he describes a Jewish society without a state. That attempt to show the singular role of science in Zionism cannot be understood without considering the tension between the two visions. Old New Land is part of a series of utopian essays with a Zionist tone that flourished beginning in the last quarter of the 19th century. Notably, it was not a futuristic novel Old New Land that came under fire when it was published in 1902, but instead the Jewish state some six years earlier. It is not surprising that a proto-Zionist utopian literature should have flourished since the, the hope of a, a forthcoming assembly of the Jews in Jerusalem is embedded in the daily Jewish liturgy and known even to Jews who uh, have never opened a prayer book. The actual project, on the other hand, the setting up of mediations toward the realization of an objective that is not fully defined and is held to be unattainable, is what carries the subversive charge here. Judged harmful, unrealistic, impossible, impossibly grandiose, the Jewish state was systematically maligned and dismissed. In short, the common opinion, literary utopia is routine, maybe even repetitive, while it is the program 
supported by an uh, executable plan that is truly subversive, unrealistic, and therefore qualified by its detractors as utopian. In Herzl's Uwer, a realistic utopia coexists with a, fan with a fantasy project. The realized society named Altneuland owes everything to its Jewish engineers from Europe, the most modern scientific, economic, and social technology at hand presents itself as a fiction, but Herzl's Judenstadt was seen as the most unrealistic thing that, that could be. The Jewish state and old new land are in a re relationship of mutual contradiction, and the charge of subversion generally ca carried by utopian genre is transposed onto the program. Herzl is aware of this contradiction. In his foreword to the Jewish states, he notes, I quote, I wrote this utopia only to show that it is not a utopia. There, was enough, there, there are enough utopias before and after Thomas More. No sensible person has thought to re of realizing them. They entertain but do not take, end quote. While the emigration of Jews to a specific land would appear to have been a technically feasible task in those times of international migration and colonial planning, in the eyes of Herzl's readers, especially his Jewish readers, it seemed an impossible and demiurgic plan. For this reason, the place of, uh, of assembly remains undetermined in the Jewish state, although Herzl locates old new lands, new society in Palestine, while, while noting that it could exist anywhere. Now I move to Altneuland, the Monatschrift für die Wirtschaftliche Erschließung Palestinas. Herzl's two, two books are thus situated at the crossroads of two series. On the one hand, Austrian liberal progressivism, which advocated a profound social reform of the Habsburg monarchy, permeates the Jewish state. A technocratic, plan-oriented criticism runs all through Herzl's project. It is here that a very particular link between Zionism and science technology is established. Herzl, in the Jewish state, reason, uh, reasoned using a problem-solution framework. The problem was the persistence of anti-Semitism in Europe in spite of emancipation. The solution was a state for the Jews. To bring about that solution, the Zionist movement would have to rely entirely on scientific and technical explorations, as the solution, a state for the Jews, was precisely an aim, solving the Jewish problem in Europe. Thus, early on, the Zionist movement created functional branches intended to, to fulfill the specific tasks that were indispensable to the execution of the project. The journal, Altneuland Monatschrift für die Wirtschaftliche Erschließung Palestinas, Organ der Zionistischen Kommission zur Erforschung Palestinas, was founded during the Sixth Zionist Congress held in Basel in 1903. Strangely, the German named, the, a journal named after Herzl's literary text was to become a place of scientific expertise, dedicated to the practiced realization of the building of a productive Jewish society in Palestine and covering topics such as methods of financing the settlement of migrants, the purchase and regulation of landed property, the cooperative organization of labor, water management, the adaptation of modern agricultural techniques to mastery of desert terrain, the development of infrastructure in the acquired lands, as well as numerous scientific subjects that would at first glance appear too esoteric for the practical realization of the project. It is made clear in the programmatic text published in the first issue, 1904, that science will occupy a cardinal place in the journal. I, I quote this uh, mission statement. That, the, that, that, they will may, that they will may become a saving, redeeming deed, this purpose must be served above all by that which is the most powerful force of our time, 
science. We must know exactly the ground on which the house of Achashver is to stand. We must work through the building plan to the last and smallest detail. We must recruit and train the builders who are to carry out the plan. We must ensure that the inhabitants know how to, how to amply earn their bread in honest creative work so that they also retain the time and strength to direct their gaze upwards toward higher human goals. End quote. Herzl not only formulates the project, he stands at the epicenter of a vast socio-technical network, a network of experts, each of whose specific knowledge contributes to the plan. The journal engages the whole panoply of available knowledge, from social planning to the study of soils, from demography to botany, from ethnographic knowledge about indigenous populations to knowledge about endemic disease, from the economic behavior of populations to hydraulic science. By science, then, I mean all the disciplines, including the social and political sciences, taken together, made coherent, and organized by a network of experts. I move now to Franz Oppenheimer. In 1902, when Herzl read Franz Oppenheimer's article, Jüdische Siedlungen, Jewish Settlements, in Die Welt, he immediately imagined that the Zionist movement would have to engage in social experimentation in Palestine. Oppenheimer's public endorsement of Zionism, published in Die Welt in 1903, inaugurated a phase in which all of the knowledge of agrarian reform and social engineering, in particular the knowledge developed within the Verein für Sozialpolitik in Germany, would converge and be mobilized to carry out a social experiment in vivo outside Europe. The fact that Herzl managed to place himself at the heart of the network did, uh, did not, however, mean that every element within the network shared his vision. Oppenheimer, the German patriot, Jewish, Jewish German patriot, believed that the solution offered by the colonization of Palestine was exclusively a solution for the Ostjuden, the East European Jews. It is on the Ostjuden that he wanted to perform his social political science experiments in a space that, while it was not, certainly not virgin, was not affected by the contractions of capitalism on which he was a renowned expert. His participation in the Zionist network offered him an opportunity to experiment as an engineer, taking advantage of the absence of laws of gravity to build an ideal social edifice. Between Herzl and Oppenheimer, there was a kind of dialectic. Oppenheimer adhered to the platform of Basel, the first Zionist Congress, which Herzl had convened. In Old New Land, Herzl, in turn, was strongly inspired by Oppenheimer's social theory and reformist recommendations. Within this circle, utopia became a practical matter, the execution of a plan by all available modern, modern means. Uh, and maybe I can add here, uh, just half in passing, about the nature of a utopia in the, towards the end of the 19th century, which I know from the book that Yaakov just mentioned, where utopia towards the end, in the last uh, third of the um, 19th century, utopia becomes much, much more pragmatic in orientation than it had been before. Before it was much more a literary thing, something impossible to achieve. Towards the end of the 19th century, in this sense, Zionism belongs to a much wider context. Uh, utopias are understood as actually programs which are achievable. And uh, so there's a kind of re reimagination of, of, of what, what utopia actually means. The dual nature that already characterized the science of 
this early phase of the Zionist project can be gauged from the fact that the journal devoted to the colonization of Palestine was named Old New Land rather than the Jewish state, as if only the utopian goal could carry the full realistic load of the science and technology put to use to carry it out. Here, utopia was translated into the technical language of all possible sciences, disclaiming its own utopianness. The technical knowledge of engineers was a foundation of which the Zionist practice was built. There is, a, and this is well known from Penster already from 1991, there is an affinity here between Herzl and Jules Verne, since the anticipated reality is always based on the potentialities of the present world, which are numerous. Old New Land's Palestine is a kind of mysterious land, uh, the occasion of a realistic Robinsonade driven by, a, by technological progress. And in the Jewish state, the Jews uh, are really embarked on the Nautilus, a submarine in 20,000 uh, leagues under the sea, which after its scientific in inventory of the, sea, uh, of the seabed has to figure out where to emerge. The ability to project oneself into the future depends entirely on the means at one's disposal, and these means at the time were thought to be limitless. It is here that utopia becomes altogether realistic. The mobilization of all possible scientific and technical means, the articulation and association of all available knowledge and know-how opens the way to the realization of a project. From a simple abstraction, from an imagined plan inscribed on land, the project becomes objective. It is progressively loaded with layers of reality. Ever more concrete, it is transferred on the way from Europe uh, to Palestine into reality. Now I move to Arthur Rupin. An abstraction progressively weighted with layers of reality, this is a good definition of the task undertaken by Arthur Rupin, who is widely recognized as a principal figure in Zionism's pre-World War I era. Rupin's centrality to the Zionist ethos can be seen in the fact that uh, every Israeli city has a, a street named after him. But Rupin differed from the other leaders. He was not a political leader, but something close to a, a project manager on behalf of the Zionist organization. Rupin's ability to plan on the one hand and to execute plans on the other is an expression of the quintessential and tension-riddled role that planning occupied in the Zionist movement from its very inception. The tension between the pragmatism of the Jewish state and the utopia of the old new land. Rupin wore many hats. He was a social scientist, a sociologist, a statistician, a demographer of the Jewish people, a, prom a prominent functionary of the Zionist movement, and a planner and executor of plans. But what held these roles together, and is important for us, is the highly scientific, pragmatic approach toward problem solving that characterized much of his activity. A realist, he conceived of, of problems in factual terms, the way that reality presented them to him. He approached them technically, seeking a solution for each problem, and science was the most powerful instrument at his disposal. In a certain way, Rupin was apolitical, a highly efficient functionary of the Zionist movement who attempted to remain above politics and never belonged to any Zionist faction. And Rupin epitomizes the tension between the Jewish state and old new land as a director of the Palestine office of the Zionist organization, he was an efficient functionary of the Zionist movement, working in a in rational scientific mode, 
developing plans, experimenting with them to see how they worked in the real world, and then fully executing them in a long teleological chain. The ultimate goal, however, toward which all these solutions were, were geared was not, not fully formulated or articulated, at least, at least not until much later. After the 1929 Arab massacres of, uh, massacre of Jews in Hebron, when Rupin finally admitted that the Zionist movement had to strive for a state for the Jews. I suggest that it was, in fact, uh, critically important for the pursuit of the solutions that the goal not be articulated. It had to remain open, at least somewhat vague and utopian. In a way that was typical of German Zionism, Rupin's participation in the Zionist movement was not due to its diplomatic goals, but because he wanted to transport to Palestine the German, and actually very Jewish German, idea of Bildung, the idea of self-transformation and human improvement. At the same time, he had a highly practical orientation to planning and carrying out those plans. When it came to the ultimate goal of Zionism, Rupin, like much more idealistic German Jewish colleagues in Brit Shalom group to which he belonged, such as Gershom Scholem and Hugo Bergman, so Rupin conceived of it in terms of culture and building. The state itself was understood not as a condition for the realization of the ideal, but rather as an obstacle to it. Rupin then was a scientific materialist in terms of of attitude, orientation, and activity, but his Zionism was, in the end, profoundly idealistic project. Unlike Oppenheimer, who considered Zionism to be for the Eastern European Jews, not the German Jews, Rupin thought of it as being for German Jews as well, even though he considered the state, uh, the state to be superfluous, a, a cumbersome legacy of Europe synonymous with domination, which one could gladly do without. Rupin's and Oppenheimer's relationship to the Zionist movement differed in other ways as well. Rupin moved to Palestine, while Oppenheimer never intended to move there, and Rupin devoted his entire life and career to the Zionist movement, while Oppenheimer was involved in the Zionist movement from a subjectively much more external place, lending his scientific expertise to the Zionist movement. In fact, the differences between Rupin and Oppenheimer display some of the diversity found in the scientific network connected to the Zionist movement from the outset. Oppenheimer, also, who uh, also founded and uh, edited Altneuland Journal, together with Otto Warburg and, um, and Zelig Zoskin. But the relationship between Rupin and Oppenheimer was nonetheless deeper, or perhaps we should say more structural than these con uh, uh, contrasts might make appear. Both Oppenheimer and Rupin viewed the yeshuv, literally settlement, uh, um, the emerging Jewish society in Palestine, as a social scientific experiment that had to do at its core with the possibility of establishing a society without a state. And why should one want to establish a society without a state? Because only such a society could evade the contradictions that characterize modern states. Some of the settlement activities for which Rupin is most renowned were experiments that he carried out following Oppenheimer's sociological ideas. Rupin's aim was to establish a reformed society, a healthy, productive society. As Oppenheimer argued in the Verein für Sozialpolitik, the agrarian reform in Prussia, uh, responding to the social problems there should be the model for, the, for Zionist activity. 
In this reformed society, the land would not be run by a class of land-owning aristocracy, the Junkers in that case, employing a large landless population of poor foreign Polish laborers. We should emphasize that Rupin wanted not only to avoid the creation of those two classes among the Jewish settlers. He was also opposed to the creation of a class of Jewish landowners who would employ non-Jewish Arab workers. In fact, one of the, one of the features of Rupin's planning, planning process was that it included the study, mapping, and modeling of the best ways to maximize the use of the land for the benefit of both the Jewish and the Arab peoples. His plan was intended to establish Jewish settlements in which the owners and the workers would be one and the same class. Oppenheimer used capitalism in terms of ownership of land in equality and with solidarity, which is the idea of Genossenschaft, to develop the sociological and economic models. This kind of social engineering experiment, Rupin and Oppenheimer agreed, could only be carried out outside of Europe and only outside of the state. Why was that? Because the experiment was intended to evade the Marxist philosophy and doctrine. It was an experiment in creating a new society without going through class struggle and revolution. That is, sidestepping the structures and challenges that characterize European history. And this experiment could only take place outside of Europe because it relied on the creation of spontaneous movement, not a process conducted by a state. It is easier to evade Marxism and revolution when you go to an entirely new place, because if you can create a new structure, you do not have to, do, you, you do not have to revolutionize an existing society, and you can avoid having to overturn an existing social order. This experiment was a form of social reformation based on science, and it was carried out based not only on scientific reasoning, but also on a highly technological process, in the sense of technology as a process intended to achieve a certain end. Rupin employed and applied Oppenheimer's ideas, for instance, in establishing Merchavia. And uh, the goals and the process, the ends and the means, were very closely integrated. The process, establishing agricultural settlements as part of a new Jewish society, served the goal of creating settlements where ownership would be in the hands of the settlers themselves in order to avoid the creation of two classes of owners and of workers. In Rupin's attempt to establish settlements, following Oppenheimer's ideas, we can thus see an engineering project that we could call ex nihilo, a process that starts from nothing. None of the elements that are expected to be found in the end construct are available or in place at the outset. Each one of them, and all of them together, must be planned and built from ground up, from A to Z, beginning with the idea of the, of the form the intended settlement should take, then, and continuing through all the empirical facets of locating land, determining whether it is feasible for the intended purpose, creating the financial means to purchase it, actually purchasing it, establishing the settlements, seeking uh, and attracting settlers, and populating the settlement with settlers. This is a national movement in which planning is the be-all and end-all. While Herzl's Jewish state positions the state for the Jews as its aim, Rupin's whole experiment of creating a new society is only possible and justifiable without the existence of a state. Because if the state already exists, such a venture takes on quite a different color and form, almost by definition a coercive form rather than a spontaneous and voluntary one. 
Rupin, in this sense, exemplifies the tension between Herzl's two Zionist poles, the scientific engineering of a solution and the utopian. The spirit of rational state building is the legacy of the Jewish state, but the vision of a harmonious society without the state is the legacy of old new land. Now, I move to the last section, which is the, the first two decades and today, with question mark. In this talk, I've argued, focusing on, two, on the first two decades of the Zionist movement, that from the very inception of the movement, science played a critical role in it. I have suggested that the basic social intellectual structure of science in the Zionist movement was established by Herzl's two main books uh, on Zionism, The Jewish State and Old New Land. The Jewish state projected a state for the Jewish people as a pragmatically attainable project. The, the doc, this document reasoned in terms of a problem and a solution. The problem was the Jewish question in Europe, and the solution was a state for the Jews outside of Europe. The main instrument for achieving the solution was rational, methodical planning. Old New Land, however, imagined a future utopian Jewish society in which a state did not feature. In the present talk, I've argued that while certain respects the Jewish state and old new land could be seen as not only compatible but in fact complementary, in other respects they set up a tension in the Zionist project. I illustrated this argument with three inter interconnected examples. Alt Neuland, the journal of the Zionist organization, Franz Oppenheimer's involvement, and Arthur Rupin's activity in Palestine. In all three examples, a similar tension was shown to be at work. On the one hand, a highly pragmatic, scientific, and technological orientation, very closely following the model established in the Jewish state, it was accompanied, on the other hand, by work towards a goal that was not stated, uh, and was not, that was not a state, sorry, that was also not fully articulated. In other words, a tangible, solid, realistic, scientific engineering orientation, but in the surface of an open, idealistic, utopian goal. The state of Israel was thus literally cobbled together like a large, complex, technical object that was nevertheless loved enough to materialize, unlike Bruno Latour's Aramis, the automated urban tramway that failed because it was not loved enough. I don't know if you know that book. Here, love is not simply the emotional dimension that carries any political project in the language of the sociology of science, Love refers to the intensity of investment and the capacity to attract individuals, attach allies, enlist operational knowledge, initiate and expand the network, insert the project into a teleological series, articulate it, and materialize it. The abstraction was progressively weighted with layers of reality, declarations of intent, plans, reports, accounting, uh, action programs, technical committees, in vivo experiments, by a, a indissociably political and socio-technical network until the abstraction finally became reality. It is, a, if it had not gained concreteness uh, and objectivity, the object could have uh, stagnated in an uncertain state or regressed to the state of a project or even to the status of a utopia um, or the rank of pure chimera. The world, including the Jewish world, has changed in dramatic ways since the first two decades of the Zionist movement and the establishment of Israel in 1948. Contemporary Israeli society and the roles of science and technology in that society have been shaped by numerous events and processes external to the object of this current talk. 
Yet here, for just a moment, I'd like to uh, fast forward to the present, the third decade of the 21st century, and discuss briefly two issues that nonetheless are related to the intellectual structure established in the Zionist movement's first two decades. The first issue I wish to discuss is the counterpart to the strong scientific and technological orientation built into Zionism from its inception. The Jewish state, I noted, was based on a problem-solution reasoning. Moreover, even though from its inception the Zionist movement involved the widest range of scientific knowledge from geology and uh, agronomy to ethnology and folklore, its scientific model was the hard sciences, an idealized science with capital S that is very close to engineering and technology. There is an Israeli disposition to frame things in terms of problems and to seek technological solutions to these problems. It is easy to illustrate this using the history of Israel's discussions about defense against missiles or uh, attack tunnels from Gaza or from Lebanon, for instance. This disposition uh, incorporates a certain blindness to the fact that many, if not most, social and political problems cannot be addressed through technology, and even more essentially, that some subjects cannot even be articulated in terms of problems, much less problems that can be solved by technological rather than political means. The historical roots of this intellectual structure can be found in the status of science in the first two decades of the Zionist movement. More generally, however, we have seen that, the, uh, that from the inception of the Zionist movement, science was conceived as the most important means for advancing the goal of a state for the Jews. I want to end, therefore, with a second question, the question of the way in which the Zionist movement persists today in the state of Israel which goes back to my framing when I, when I started. So to what extent does Israel uh, inherit the Jewish state, the problem-solution approach to the Jewish problem in Europe? And to what extent is it all new land that has lived on, the, the, the open goal of social utopia, the, experiment, the experimental utopian project to solve the contradictions of capitalism in Europe? The Jewish state and, old new, and the old new land articulate these two dimensions respectively without it being exactly clear where one ends the other and, and the other begins. But one thing is certain. If the Jewish problem persists in Europe, the logic of the Jewish state via Israel's law of return continues to permeate the state of Israel as a solution to that problem. And if the utopia has gradually collapsed, as it has everywhere else, its traces in Israeli society still remain to in, in the form of a scientific and technological version of utopia. Thank you. Thank you. Please, have a seat. It's Are you stopping at three? No, we're starting at 2.15. This is how it's been advertised for the last four weeks. Where? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I have probably shown that. This is how it's been advertised. By whom? I thought, I thought you'd have an exception. Sorry. Welcome, welcome anyhow. Uh, can, can I ask you before we start, just uh, for those of you who feel comfortable, just uh, sign in so we can uh, show our participation. We have time for questions and answers and uh, discussion. Come on, please. Come on. I want to start, I'm sorry, uh, uh, maybe from the, from the very uh, conceptual building blocks of, uh, of discussion. Well, let me stop this.